Alright, hello my friends. Welcome to another episode of Declaring Liberty. I'm Mark Pantano. Today is Friday, September 20th. Happy Friday to you. Hope you have plans for this weekend. I don't know what, what the weather's like in your area, but here it's actually supposed to get pretty hot. Looks like we are having our annual bout of Indian summer. Uh, yes, I said Indian summer because I am not going to change language that I grew up using. No one would have scolded me for uh, being politically incorrect for saying Indian summer back when I learned what that phrase meant. And I'm not going to change now, so uh, you can suck it. Now, uh, oh, well, with respect to this Indian summer, here it's going to be in the low to mid-80s. At least that's what they're projecting over the next few days. And to me, in the middle of September, middle to end of September, uh, mid-80s is oh, like basically intolerable. I've just been able to start wearing shoes again. And now I'm going to have to take the shoes off at least for the next week. I can't stand the heat. I'm, I'm not a hot weather guy. And that might be surprising to you, given that I lived for so long in Texas. It's, it's surprising to me. I don't know how the hell I, I was ever able to do it. And it's such a shame, too, because I love Texas. I absolutely love Texas, but I, I just can't stand the heat. If Texas had a different climate, I, I probably never would have left. But I just can't take it. That and my allergies. I have terrible allergies. Uh, I mean, really, really bad. Um, I won't bore you with that. But it was, in terms of allergies, worst place I've ever lived. Um, mountain cedar in the wintertime. Oh, it's awful. Just awful. But, again, a shame because I love Texas. So don't take any of my not liking your climate uh, as, as evidence that I don't like your state. It's not true at all. I love Texas. Anyways, okay. Now on to the issues. I want to begin by talking about this ridiculous, at least at this point, whistleblower case. You've probably heard about this. Apparently some anonymous person inside one of these intelligence agencies filed a complaint with the inspector general for that area claiming that he or she overheard or listened to some conversation that President Trump was having on the phone with some foreign leader and that he allegedly made some kind of a promise that was apparently improper in some way. That's about all we know. Um, even assuming that that much of it is true, that's all we know. So far, a big pile of nothing. But that doesn't mean that Democrats are not getting all excited about this. They've, they think they are on to yet another thing that's going to bring down the president. And at least at this point, uh, they've got nothing. And I don't think they're going to have anything. But we shall see how this unfolds. What I wanted to talk about... Um, was this idea of checks and balances uh, that gets... We, we toss this phrase around all the time, and a lot of people who use it don't know what the hell they're talking about. When I used to teach college, college courses on 
uh, the Constitution and American government, which I may do again in the future, but I seriously doubt it, just because this crop of college students is uh, so pathetically uninformed and poorly educated. I, you know, I really, when I decided to start teaching these these college courses, I was excited uh, to be able to talk about these things with young adults who were smart and interested in this. Um, but that's not at all what I found. Uh, I found a bunch of entitled, uninspired, bored, privileged, and completely un uneducated brats who were there basically uh, just as I mentioned in yesterday's podcast, just to uh, continue the party of adolescence. Now, that didn't apply to everyone. There certainly were a few in, in each class that I had who were uh, impressive and tried hard and studied hard and, and took it all seriously. But they were the distinct minority. Um, anyways, that's neither here nor there. What I was bringing this up for was because one of the things that I, I liked to do, and I made it a focus of, of the class, especially in classes in which the Constitution was, was a focus, I, I tried to show how the Constitution really is in play in most political issues that come up to one degree or another. And I would use current events as a springboard uh, from which to have discussions about the applicable constitutional uh, provisions that might apply and the concepts and, and so forth. One of, the, one of the things that made it so difficult uh, in, in trying to teach the classes that way is that so few of these students had any idea what was going on in, in the world. No, they're completely oblivious to almost all news. Not just political events, but I mean, they could tell you about Beyonce uh, and what happens in in you know the cultural stuff. They could tell you all about movies and whoever the the big flavor on YouTube was at the moment or something like that. But in terms of political issues, they absolutely clueless. Had no freaking idea, and it obviously made having discussions about current events and the Constitution. All but impossible. Very frustrating. And you know this. This is this is why I, I no longer teach college courses. Um, perhaps I'm not closed the door completely. Anyway, okay. So what I wanted to bring talk about this um, whistleblower case for was this issue of checks and balances. I've got a clip here uh, of Fredo Cuomo on CNN. He brought on a guest to discuss this whistleblower topic. And of course, he expected this guest, who is a CNN analyst, his name's uh, Philip Mudd. He expected this guest uh, to, of course, agree with the Democrat line that this is all very scandalous and there's probably all kinds of criminal uh, criminality at the heart of this and we need to investigate and the IG needs to turn over all this information and blah 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 well Fredo was shocked to find out that Mud 
did not take that position. He was, in fact, um, quite angry that this is even an issue. Uh, because in his estimation, the president is entitled to have whatever conversations that he wants with anyone on the world stage that he wants and to say anything that he wants. That is within the president's right to do and should not be the subject of oversight by Congress or anyone else, or certainly by anonymous whistleblowers uh, ratting, the, ratting the president out to uh, House members. So I've got this clip from Fredo, which sets up what I want to talk about. So listen to this. All right, but now hold on a second. Well, what if he did say something to a foreign leader that sounded like a promise that went over the line enough that somebody of good conscience said he's not supposed to say things well, like this? Well, pardon me. What the heck is over the line? The president can say what he wants to Putin. He can say what he wants to Kim Jong-un. He can say to Kim Jong-un, which I think is completely over the top, I'm going to go meet you in the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, despite the fact that we don't have any real agreements, as far as I can tell, on nukes and missiles. The president can say what he wants. It's not the responsibility of the intel guys to go police the president and go snitch on him to the Congress. Ridiculous. And now I understand. I didn't two hours ago. Now I understand why, why uh, a former decorated SEAL, McGuire, the head of the intel community, was reluctant. Why does he have to go report on what the president says? Well, if they have an agreement, a rule structure in place that if a complaint reaches an urgent concern level to the inspector general, that Congress gets to see it, the obvious mechanism here is checks and balances. No, I don't, I don't agree with that. If it's that big of a concern that somebody's got to check power, right? I don't agree with that. I think inspect... Okay. So two reasons I played this. One is... Uh, just to address this issue generally, uh, because the media is all in a frenzy over this, and at this point, there's absolutely nothing to this. Unless somebody overheard the president committing some sort of blatant crime, uh, then, then anyone within these intelligence communities running to Congress to, to squeal on the president about conversations that he's having with world leaders it is ridiculous. So I wanted to, to bring it up for that point. But the other reason is for this notion of checks and balances. Okay? Now just taking that issue, that concept, checks and balances, what does that mean? What Fredo seems to think that it means is that Congress gets to oversee everything that the president does. Everything that the president does, every conversation that he has, the Congress should have access to. And that it's perfectly acceptable in this case for some intelligence official who was privy to this phone call between Trump and some world leader to run to the, to the Congress and tell them the substance of it or to run to an IG and complain anonymously to the IG about what the president said. That is not what we mean when we talk about checks and balances uh, with respect to th what the Constitution provides. What the Constitution provides in terms of checks and balances is that each branch has authorities that serve as a check to the others. And that comes from the, the structure of the Constitution itself separation of powers. 
Now, the separation of powers is where we have taken, taken the fundamental functions of government, passing laws, enforcing laws, and applying laws. Notice I didn't say interpreting laws. Because when it comes to the judiciary, that is a misnomer. The judiciary doesn't get to automatically interpret laws and tell us what they mean. Nowhere in the Constitution does it give sole authority to the judiciary to interpret and tell the rest of us what the laws mean. Each branch of government gets to interpret the laws as they see them. Where this comes from, this idea that the judiciary gets to interpret the laws, and that's its primary function. That's not its primary function. But where this comes from is that in the course of exercising its authority and engaging in its primary function, which is to decide cases and controversies, sometimes a law passed by Congress is at issue. For example, you get charged with some crime under some law passed by Congress and you want to challenge the constitutionality of that crime. Say, for example, they, they, um, they charge you with some crime for some speech that you engaged in. Okay? And this law somehow criminalizes what you said and they charge you with a crime for saying something. And during the course of your criminal trial, you, ch you uh, challenge the constitutional validity of that statute under which they are prosecuting you by claiming that it violates the First Amendment. Now, the court, in, in the process of adjudicating your claim by engaging in their primary function of deciding cases and controversies, they get to interpret the law and the Constitution and pass on the constitutionality of that law. So that's where it comes from. It, they have that authority in the course of uh, adjudicating cases before them to interpret laws, right? What they do not get to do is just interpret laws just whenever they want. Unless there's a case in controversy before them calling some law into question, they don't get to do that. So each branch of government has their authority. Legislating, enforcing, and uh, determining, uh, adjudicating cases and controversies as the judiciary does. Okay, so those are the separate, that's how we separate the primary functions of government among the three branches. The, uh, under Article 1, we set up Congress and describe their authority under Article 1 of the Constitution. Article 2 sets up the presidency and its authorities. Article 3 sets up the judiciary and its authorities. So under each of these three articles, we have the powers of the federal government delineated and separated. And inherent in each of those branches and their authority is the ability to exercise their authority in ways that provides a check on the other branches. An example of that would be the president's veto power. Congress cannot enact a law unless it is signed by the president. The president can veto any bill. That is a check. Another check, for example, 
is a check that the Congress has on the judiciary. Congress has the authority to limit the jurisdiction of the courts. That is a check. By exercising that authority, which they never do, uh, they could act as a check on a runaway judiciary and keep them in line. Now that's something that we should be doing, but we don't. The judiciary gets to run amok and we don't say anything about it, but there are checks in place. Another check on the judiciary is the whole appointment and confirmation process. We get to determine you know, through our elected representatives and the president who is going to populate the courts. That is a check and a balance. Uh, there are many such checks and balances in the Constitution. But when we talk about checks and balances, what we are really talking about are these mechanisms in the Constitution that each branch has as their authorities to constitutionally keep the other two branches in line and driving within their lanes. Unfortunately, one of our major problems in our country is that the checks and balances that the Constitution provides to each of the three branches are seldom utilized. Now, of course, we have threats of vetoes, but <laughs> the truth of the matter, we never get or seldom actually get any vetoes. I would like to see presidents uh, vetoing a hell of a lot more bills that come out of Congress because Congress produces mostly crap bills that infringe upon our liberties. That, that's largely what they produce. So I would like to see the president exercise the check that they have by vetoing a lot more bills. But whatever. The truth of the matter is we, we, have, uh, we have collusion, uh, for lack of a better word, between the president and the Congress. And I'm not just talking about this president and this Congress. I'm just talking generally. In recent years, we have largely collusion between the executive and the legislative branch to infringe upon Americans' rights uh, by passing legislation that far exceed the bounds of what the Constitution uh, allows them to do. And then we have further collusion by the judiciary, which largely rubber stamps uh, the acts taken by Congress and the president in passing these um, these unconstitutional laws. Perfect example, Obamacare. Congress exceeded its authority by passing that law. The president signed it. Of course, it was Obama. He signed it. And the courts, thank you, Judge Justice Roberts, um, upheld that abomination. So you've got collusion among all three branches. Uh, the checks and balance system uh, completely broke down there. But this is what we're talking about when we talk about checks and balances. We're talking about the legitimate authorities given by the Constitution to each of the three branches of government to keep the other two in line. What we are not talking about is what Fredo here uh, thinks checks and balances means. Okay? It is not the prerogative of the Congress to oversee every aspect of what the executive does. Nowhere in the Constitution is Congress given that authority. 
And neither does the president have the authority. I mean, it's not even a question. No one would suggest that the president has the right to listen in on all the internal deliberations that uh, members of Congress have with their staffs, for example. You know, uh, you, nowhere, nobody suggests that the president or even the Congress has the authority or has the right to know what is discussed inside the Supreme Court chambers when they're, say, they're deciding cases. Of course, the hearings on the cases are public, but that's not where all the action really is. The action is inside the Supreme Court chambers where members of the court are discussing these cases and deciding the outcome. Largely, in a Supreme Court hearing, they either just sit there and say nothing or they just ask questions. But we don't see any deliberation between the justices. That's, that's what I would like to see. You know, there's no reason they couldn't make those public, but of course they don't. And nobody suggests that the president or Congress has the right to know what is going on inside their internal deliberations. That is the prerogative of the court. That is exclusively within their authority to conduct their business under Article 3 as they see fit. And if they want to have private deliberations, then uh, neither of the other two branches of government have the right to access those private deliberations. And when the president is conducting what is solely his authority under the Constitution, and that is to conduct foreign affairs. And he's having phone conversations with world leaders. Members of Congress have absolutely no right to listen into those conversations or to have disgruntled political hack whistleblowers run to the Inspector General and who will then run to Congress and report on conversations that the President is having. If you are a member of the intelligence community and for whatever reason you are listening in to a phone conversation that the president has and you are outraged by what you're hearing and you think that what the president is saying is improper, then you have two choices. Shut your mouth and do your job or resign. Those are your choices. And depending upon you know what the classifications um, might prohibit you from saying with respect to what you heard. You may or may not be able to go out and, and uh, tell the world what you heard. But those are, your, those are your options. The president has a right to conduct his Article II authority however he sees fit. And the Congress does not have the right to those, to those phone calls to oversee them. That's not a legitimate check and balance on the presidency. Okay, so um, yeah, let's move on. We'll stay with the issue of the Constitution for now though. A federal judge in California actually did the right thing, amazingly enough. I've got an article here from Fox News. I'm gonna turn the, give me some more light here. Okay. A federal judge in California Thursday granted the Trump campaign's request to block a new law 
that requires presidential and gubernatorial candidates to release five years of tax returns to run in the state's primary elections. The law signed by Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, do you really need to put a Democrat in a story about California? What is, who else is going to be governor of California? By the way, uh, just a few decades ago, that would have been an open question. But thanks to the invasion of illegal aliens across our southern border that neither of our two political parties did a damn thing about, the Democrats, for obvious reasons, and Republicans... Um, because they are only concerned with power and money from their, you know, their big money donors who want cheap labor. They did nothing about it, and now California is a solid blue state for the foreseeable future. But I digress. Anyway, the law signed by Governor Gavin Newsom in July would have left the sitting president off the ballot in California's March 2020 primary unless he submitted five years' worth of his tax returns by a November 26th deadline. Under SB 27, Trump would be included on the general election ballot in November 2020, but opponents of the law argued that depressed GOP voter turnout in the primary could discourage voters from showing up to vote for the president uh, in the main race. Well, that may or may not be true. That's not really a legal argument. Uh, And here's the deal. They passed this law and it applies to all presidential candidates who want to get on the primary ballot in California, uh, as well as gubernatorial candidates. Now, although it applies to all of those people, it was obviously directed solely at President Trump. The Democrats have been trying in vain, desperately, to get their hands on President Trump's tax returns. And why? Well, because they think there will be proof of of tax fraud or other crimes inside, you know, in his tax returns. And even if not, they think that at the very minimum, there is all kinds of embarrassing information about Trump that they can use against him. So that's all, that's what it's about. It's purely political. And Democrats were using this law in California as a way to try to force the president to release his tax returns. Now, obviously, this was the right outcome in this case. The, the judge, what the judge did was he issued a temporary injunction. The Trump campaign and actually other campaigns filed a lawsuit challenging this new law um, because they wanted to get on the ballot without having to release five years of tax returns, and so they challenged this law. the The court. Uh, the, the lawsuits have not been finally ruled upon yet. This was simply a preliminary injunction. However, this is proof or evidence that, uh, that well, it, it's proof that the judge thinks that the, the Trump campaign and these other campaigns will eventually prevail on the merits of this case. Because in order to issue a preliminary injunction, the... Um, the movements must show basically two things. One, that they are likely to prevail on the merits ultimately in the case. And two, that without the temporary injunction being issued, that they will suffer uh, permanent harm. 
And so obviously the court had to, to to find both of those things in order to issue this preliminary injunction. Now here's why this law is so blatantly unconstitutional in my view. The United States Constitution sets forth the qualifications for people to serve as president. You must be a natural born citizen and you must be 35 years old. That's it. Those are the only constitutional qualification qualifications for service as president of the United States. It is unconstitutional for any state, for any locality, or even for Congress and the president to impose additional qualifications for service as president of the United States. You cannot legally, constitutionally, impose additional qualifications that go above and beyond what the Constitution provides. That would be frustrating the Constitution's uh, purposes in that regard. And so you simply, you simply can't do it. And, uh, you know, the retort from the other side would be, well, this isn't a qualification for service. This is just a qualification for ballot access. Well, that's, you know, that's ridiculous on its face because you can't serve as president unless you win the election. And you can't win the election if you can't get on ballots. So restricting ballot access to people who have filed five years worth of their tax return with the requesting state, you know, that's, that's imposing an additional qualification ultimately on being able to serve as president. So it's just flatly unconstitutional. And the judge made the right call here. Um, but this only applies to this state law. And so I don't know if there's other laws out there uh, or other laws that soon will be out there. But if any, any state or locality, and even as I said, even if the Congress one day were to impose additional qualifications for serving as president, and even if whoever the president is at the time signs that bill into law, that would still be unconstitutional. States can't do it. Towns can't do it. The, const uh, the, the Congress and the president can't do it. No one can do it. The only way to change the qualifications for president, to impose additional qualifications, or to change the qualifications in any way, is by constitutional amendment. That's it. Period. So, that was the right decision. I want to point that out because it's, it's very seldom now that we uh, ever get good decisions from the federal judiciary. All right, moving on from law and constitution, these crazy leftists and their, did you see, I'm talking about environmentalism here, climate change. Of course, we have to call it climate change because we can't call it global warming because uh, there's not always evidence of warming and they don't want that to stop them. And, you know, it wasn't too long ago that they were warning of a, a new ice age. But now it's, then it went to uh, global warming, and now we just have settled on climate change. And it's all a bunch of bull. And it has nothing to do with saving the planet or anything, as you all know. This has everything and only to do with expanding government power. And that's it. This is about the left wanting to control every aspect of our lives. 
and using fear-mongering about the coming collapse of the planet uh, because we drive cars and eat hamburgers. They use that fear as the basis for seizing more of our liberty. That's what it's all about, period, end of story. We've got Alexandria Estupida Cortez out there pushing her Green New Deal, and of course, all the presidential candidates are in favor of that. Uh, in fact, they, they, most of them have even gone further uh, and, and just piled on more proposal to this Green New Deal. It's just ridiculous. And here is Andrew Yang. I've got an article here. He was speaking uh, at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service during MSNBC's Climate Forum when he, he went off on the idea that government, the federal government, should be attempting to control our diets. Because you see, what we eat is responsible in part for the uh, massive climate change that is, is threatening the lives of every person on the planet. Uh, someone should tell Barack Obama, by the way, you know, these leftists, they don't look out for each other. They're so concerned with saving the planet that they have lost their focus on individual people. It's their version of uh, missing the forest for the trees. Or in this case, missing the trees for the forest. They have, they have abandoned Barack Obama. They have failed to look out to their, for their dear leader. He went out and spent $15 million on an oceanside mansion in Martha's Vineyard, which sits barely two inches above sea level. Now, if you cared for the first black president, then shouldn't you have warned him that this was a bad purchase? I mean, if the glaciers are melting at an alarming rate, and as they tell us, Miami will soon be underwater. Well, let me tell you, if Miami is going to be underwater, then so too will Martha's Vineyard be underwater, and therefore Barack Obama's $15 million mansion will be underwater. Do you not care about that? The man sacrificed so much for us, and you're just going to let him piss away $15 million? on a house that's going to be underwater in five years? Ah, these damn leftists. So Andrew Young uh, wants to save Obama's mansion and the rest of us from our impending doom by, by uh, having the federal government control our diets. And one aspect of that control is to stop us from eating beef. Now, he did not, during this um, Georgetown forum, come out and outright ban the sale of beef, or propose the banning of beef. Uh, what he wants to do is simply to tax it into oblivion. He wants to levy you know, sales taxes on the sale of beef such that we uh, can't eat beef anymore because it's too expensive. That's what he wants to do. And uh, that's what will happen 
That's how they'll start uh, to, to control our diets. Ultimately, they will start banning things. They will, they will ban, they will ban uh, beef. They, they, before they just get to a wholesale banning of beef, they will ban things like um, fast food hamburgers and things like this. You know, they'll, they'll say, well, any, any restaurant that has more than 50 locations um, is prohibited from selling any hamburgers. And then it'll be all beef products. Um, and, of course, they will put on taxes for beef. and They will slowly nibble away at it until we have enough, enough people abandoning beef on their own that they can then just go and outright ban beef. That's how they'll do it. They do these things incrementally. So Andrew Yang, if he were to be elected president, or whoever it, it is, uh, is not going to simply just outright ban beef because that would be too much of a shock to the American people. So you do it incrementally. You get fast food chains, chains to stop selling hamburgers. Now that's how most people eat their beef, right? Hamburgers. That probably accounts, I don't know, for 90% of beef. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I don't know. Probably the vast majority of beef consumption is related to the hamburger. And uh, since a lot of people don't cook and eat out at every meal, uh, most of their beef consumption in the form of hamburgers comes in from, from fast food and other restaurants. So if you ban McDonald's from selling hamburgers, you know, soon a lot of people won't really have any beef. So you do that and you, know, you, you, you tack on the sales tax, you ban this, you ban that, but you don't completely outright ban beef. Pretty soon, without too much of an argument, you will have a lot of American people just completely banning beef from their own diets altogether. And once you reach uh, enough people abandoning beef on their own, then you can just go and ban it for everyone else. And so Andrew Yang wants to take the first step and slap a big old sales tax on all beef production and sales. So that's what he wants to do. Uh, and by the way, with respect to a Andrew's Yang, I reported to you last time that he is now beating Kamala Harris in California. And I frame the issue uh, more towards a conversation about the pathetic nature of Kamala Harris as a candidate and as a public figure. She really is utterly pathetic. And we all know that the only reason that any of us have ever heard of her is because she's black, or at least half black. But let me talk about Andrews Yang, um, just about him himself. I would not be surprised if the Democrat race, assuming nobody else jumps in, I would not be surprised. I'm not predicting this. I'm just telling you I would not be surprised if this race ultimately comes down to a contest between Elizabeth Warren and Andrews Yang. Because, first of all, it, it must be said that this is a, a pathetic slate of candidates. This may, uh, well, in fact, I think it is, the most unimpressive group of candidates ever to run for president in any party at any time in American history. 
I mean, this is really the bottom of the barrel. And I'm actually quite surprised. Now, most Democrats in the country today are batshit crazy. They're all crazy leftists. And even if they're not, in order to secure the Democrat nomination, they are going to at least uh, pretend to be. Right? Because you cannot secure the Democrat nomination for president without being a nut. Not, not in today's Democrat Party. But it, it surprises me that someone of uh, more significance, someone of more stature, did not jump into this race on the Democrat side. Now, I don't know who that would be. I can't even think, really, of any prominent Democrat um, who has much stature. They're all nuts. But there's got to be somebody, at least semi-serious, somewhere in the country uh, on the Democrat side. I'm, I'm surprised that nobody else has run, especially given, you know, Many people on our side think that Trump is a lock for re-election. And I, I'm not going to argue about that right now. I will simply point out that Trump, his approval ratings have been in the low 40s his entire presidency. There has not been much movement about that. Well, I know if, if you follow the president's Twitter feed, about every week he puts out that his uh, approval is at about 50 or 51%. And that's always the same poll, Rasmussen, okay? Rasmussen is not a, a terribly reliable poll. All the other polls, really every other one, from the time Trump became president to today, has him in the lower 40s. That is a solid base of support that the president has. He hasn't expanded that base uh, really a noticeably at all. It has been locked right in the low 40s. Now, that is good and bad. It's good for the president in that it appears he will be able to count on that solid group of, of people who represent about, you know, whatever, in the low 40s. And so from there, he doesn't need to add a whole lot more in order to secure his reelection when he starts from a solid whatever it is, 41, 42, 43, 45, I don't know. On the flip side, uh, he's not added much to that. And so typically, traditionally, the rule of thumb is that an incumbent president is vulnerable in, for re-election if his approval ratings are below 50%. Now, if Rasmussen is correct, and it may be, and his, the most recent numbers I saw is 51%, if, if that's correct, if his approval among the American people really stands at 51, then that is good. If it is in the low 40s, as all the other polls show, uh, then, then he's got problems for re-election. And I'm surprised that given that, there hasn't been at least somebody with the appearance of some gravitas to have jumped in on the Democrat side. And since they haven't, we're left with this slate of losers. And I wouldn't be surprised if it comes down to Elizabeth Warren, the phony Indian, and Andrews Yang. And, and the reason for that is uh, Yang has a, an air of authenticity about him. 
I mean, he seems like a pretty nice guy. I mean, and, and that that counts for a lot in American politics, whether or not you like the person, whether you get a sense of them and you like them or not. And this is why Kamala Harris's campaign was doomed to failure from the start. She's a thoroughly unlikable woman. I mean, I, mean, I got to imagine, I mean, from my perspective, the woman is irritating as hell. And, you know, I know that Democrats don't see the world and see people the way I do, obviously. But I've got to imagine that I, I try to put myself in their shoes. And I've got to imagine that most of them find her irritating as well. I mean, I think she's objectively irritating. I mean, I don't even think this is a matter of personal opinion. I think at some point someone is so irritating that it's just an objective fact that they are. And I think that Kamala Harris um, is objectively irritating. So I didn't think she had much of a choice. But Andrews Yang, on the other hand, I don't know, he comes across as a nice guy. He seems authentic. He doesn't ever seem like he's lying to you. I think, I mean, he says some crazy ass stuff. And I think it's because he honestly believes this stuff. He's just an honest to goodness, crazy ass leftist. But he seems like a nice guy. And so if you couple nice guy, appealing personality with crazy ass leftist, I think that's appealing to a lot in the Democrat party. And now that he is ahead of candidates who the mainstream media has told us were really credible candidates like Kamala Harris, and he's polling ahead of her, I don't know. At some point, I think he begins to pick up traction, especially if he stays in the race and some of these other losers continue to drop out. And I think that people will give him a second, you know, second, third, fourth look. And I wouldn't be surprised, as I say, who, who do we have, really? We've got Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden. We can all agree Joe Biden's going nowhere. He's just one or two more gaffes away from polling down, you know, 10%, 5%. And he'll eventually have to just drop out and save himself further embarrassment. But he's going nowhere. He doesn't have the mental capacity anymore. Okay. He didn't have much to begin with. You know, he's always been a buffoon. He's always been one of the dumbest people in the United States Congress. Um, but now you add senility on top of it. This guy, he's got no, no chance. Buffoon and senile, that's not, a, you know, that's, not a, uh, that's not a blueprint for victory. So he'll be gone soon. So who do you have? Uh, who else do you have? Uh, Pete Buttepuke? He's, no. No. You can't be elected president just on a platform of being gay. Yeah, that, that's, you know, that might get you a solid 5% in the Democrat party just on identity politics. But you're, even on the Democrat side, you know, that's, that's not going to get you there. At least I don't think so. And he can't even crack above like 1% uh, with, the, with uh, blacks in the Democrat party. And so I don't see him really going anywhere. And he's another one that I, I think may be approaching objective um, irritation levels. At least for me, he certainly is objectively irritating. The, the preachy way in which he talks down to people, you know, the, the way in which he uh, uses religion more and more and more to, to beat up on religious people for, in his words, using religion to beat up on people. I mean, if that is not ridiculous on its face 
of course, but that's what Democrats do. They accuse others uh, of that which they themselves are doing. So he, he's constantly attacking the Christian right for, for in his words, uh, using using religion against political opponents when that's exactly what he's doing. I mean, he's such a smarmy little punk. Uh, so I don't really see him going anywhere. Who else do you have? Uh, Cory Booker? I mean, I really don't think so, but who knows? Um, I don't know if he's objectively irritating or not. I, I don't know. But the point is, I don't think they've got a lot of good people. And if Andrews Yang were were to really rise to the top, I wouldn't be surprised. But he really is way out there uh, as a nutcase. He wants to give every American $1,000 just for being alive. Um, I wonder how many Americans under a Yang administration who ceased living will continue to get the $1,000 from the government. I don't know. Just a, just a, just a thought. Just a question. Okay. Uh, I had this story for a while and just been waiting for an opportunity to use it. This was in the news. I don't know how much it was in the news. I saw it in the news and I saw people on social media having fun with this. Uh, just posting about it, but not in the way that I want to bring it up. Federal Energy Department uh, no, let me see. Federal Energy Program suggests keeping thermostats set at 78 degrees, 82 degrees while you sleep. To keep your home cool with central air conditioning while also optimizing energy efficiency and therefore cost, keep the temperature at 78 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. The suggestion comes from Energy Star, a federal program managed jointly by the Department of Energy and the Environmental Protection Agency that provides information to consumers about energy efficiency practices that not only save consumers money, but also improve air quality and protect the environment. With record-breaking uh, record heat waves becoming the norm, finding ways to beat the heat without busting your budget might seem mystifying which is why Energy Star provided consumers with a set of energy-saving recommendations on how to best manage central air conditioning in warmer spring and summer months. Uh, according to Energy Star, keeping your central air thermostat set to 78 degrees is optimal for both cooling and energy efficiency. But this recommendation only applies to times when you are home. When you're not home, you better set it to 85. While you sleep... Energy Star recommends keeping the temperature at 82 or higher. Okay, so these recommended temperatures... Here, hold on a second. got to do something. All right. Done. These temperature recommendations is what I saw people having fun with. You know, basically um, just mocking this. You know, who, who could sleep when, when, when you keep your house at 82 or higher? Most people, most people like it cool when they sleep. I like it frigid, but most people at least like it cool. And 82 is just way too high for most people. And 78, uh, when you're home and not asleep, is, is too hot for most people as well. And so a lot of people were mocking this. And of course, it should be mocked, but it should also be taken seriously. Now, this is just some recommendations from some program inside the federal government. Uh, well, that's how these things begin. 
they begin as recommendations. They, they begin as just proposals floated by the left. And eventually, they become backed up by force of law and imposed upon all of us. Well, Mark, how are they going to control my thermostat? Oh, there are so many ways, my friend, and eventually they will. Now, think about this. More and more, our houses are being converted to these smart thermostat technologies. In a lot of places... Uh, you can sign up with your electricity provider uh, to allow them to install like a smart thermostat in your home from which they can monitor and control your heating and cooling. And if you do that, you can get all kinds of savings. That's how, that's how they get you. You know, it's always a carrot. And, and in this case, they promise you savings, reduced energy rates, or, or so forth. And once you allow them the ability to access your home's thermostat, well, then they can monitor your, your usage. They can monitor what you set your thermostat at, and they can control it. Um, and right now, that's all purely voluntary, right? But imagine how, what more control they will be able to have as our technology increases. We're, we're already at the point where they can control you. Uh, remotely control your thermostat remotely if you allow them to but soon you know if 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 democrats and the left get power such control will go from voluntary to mandatory um, and once they do that your thermostat and the temperature at which you keep your house will be controlled by entities of the government Make no mistake about it, that's where we will ultimately head if foolish people vote for Democrats. That's where we will go. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, how can they do that? That doesn't sound legal. They can't. You know, one thing is, it's one thing if I voluntarily do that, agree to that, but they can't force me to do that. Well, my friends, the legal predicate for forcing you to do that has already been set. Now, I will grant you that if we actually follow the Constitution, then the government cannot force you to do that. At least the state governments cannot force you to do that. Now, the states may very well have it within their authority under the Tenth Amendment uh, to impose that sort of regulation on you. But then you are free to get up uh, and leave your authoritarian state, if you live in a state that does that to you, and move somewhere that uh, is not controlled by the left and doesn't impose those kinds of restrictions on your life. So the states might legally be able to do that. But certainly, if, and of course, when I say may, that, that's dependent upon your state constitution and laws. I don't know your state constitution, okay? So that's why I say may. Now, Certainly, with respect to the federal government, there is no constitutional authority for the federal government to do that. The only argument that they could possibly make in favor of being able to do that is uh, the Commerce Clause. That the Commerce Clause gives authority to the Congress to regulate commerce. Well, they always leave out an important word. Um, and they, they can leave it out now because the courts have, have made it such that this word no longer is operative. But it's not the Commerce Clause. 
It's the Interstate Commerce Clause. The federal government is empowered, the Congress is empowered under Article I of the Constitution, to regulate interstate commerce. That means actual commerce going between two or more states. Now, your thermostat is in your house. Okay? Um, so that's not interstate. However, here's the problem. A lot of energy, electricity, uh, comes from outside your state. So if, if you live in an area where your electricity comes from an out-of-state source or is at least tied in to a grid that uh, is interstate in nature, they might be able to get you that way. But assume for a second that you're not. Okay? For example, Texas. All Texas energy is comes from within Texas. Texas is on its own separate grid. All right? So there's no interstate component to your electrical grid. Now, what for example, what could the federal government use legally to get at you there? If they can't use the interstate commerce clause since there's no interstate connection to your energy consumption and your thermostat in your house. Well, uh, once again, thank you, Justice Roberts, for bastardizing the Constitution, turning it, turning it on its head in order to uphold Obamacare. So you thought Obamacare was just about health care, right? No, no, no. At least not the Obamacare case. Okay, that case, while it was specifically about the Obamacare law, its implications for other areas of law, go far beyond healthcare. The constitutional concepts that were twisted beyond all recognition by uh, Judge Ro Justice Roberts and the leftists who sided with him, um, those concepts can be applied far beyond the issue of healthcare. So what, in this case, the federal government can do to force you to comply with their thermostat dictates is uh, to fine you. And it doesn't matter what size fine. It could be minuscule or it could be uh, tremendously burdensome. They could slap any kind of fine on you they want. They can slap a $10,000 a day fine on you if they wanted to. Really, the amount of the fine is irrelevant. They can fine you if you do not submit to the government's control of your thermostat. Um, because that is the precedent that the Obamacare decision uh, created. That is how Justice Roberts upheld that law. Because remember what that law did. At the heart of it was the in individual mandate. And they said you must purchase health insurance. And if you don't purchase health insurance and, pr and provide proof to the federal government with your tax returns every year that you have purchased health insurance which meets our minimum qualifications, then we can fine you. It was specifically a fine under the law. Obama said it was a fine. The Congress said it was a fine. Justice Roberts said, no, it's not a fine. It's a tax. And because the federal government has the authority to impose taxes, it is therefore constitutional for them to force you to purchase health insurance. Now, that could be applied to anything. 
they could force you to purchase anything that they want you to under that legal rationale. Okay, if they want to force everyone in America to purchase an electric vehicle, they can do that. Uh, Obamacare is the legal precedent for allowing them to do that. They can. They can also force you to uh, install one of these smart thermostats that gives the government control over your thermostat. They could just fine you or call it a tax um, if you don't. And the Supreme Court, if they follow the precedent of the Obamacare case, will uphold that law. And it doesn't matter where in the country you live or how you get your energy, what grid you're on, whether or not your electricity comes uh, through interstate commerce or not, it doesn't matter. They don't have to go through the Commerce Clause anymore to regulate this, thanks to Justice Roberts. Uh, they can just impose a fine on you, call it a tax, and voila, they can force you to do anything. Think of what the government can do to you under this case. They could do just about anything they want. And what's ironic was there were conservatives at the time of this Obamacare decision who, who applauded it because before this case was decided, the question was Commerce Clause. Nobody even raised the tax issue. Even the proponents of Obamacare, even though the, the lawyers for Obama did not argue that it was a tax. The argument all centered on the Commerce Clause and whether or not the federal government had the authority under the Commerce Clause to, to uh, write this law. Conservative commentators were happy with decision, this decision because Justice Roberts, uh, in his opinion, said that the Commerce Clause does not go so far as to give the federal government the authority to force you to purchase health insurance. That was good because that's what we were worried about. However, what he gives with one hand, he takes with the other. And he vastly expanded beyond all recognition the authority of the federal government um, and gave them the blueprint to do so just by calling anything and everything that they wanted to do a tax. Just attach a tax component to it, a fine for doing or not doing something. And they can force you to do or not do anything that they want, thanks to the Ob Obamacare decision. And this is the, th that opened the gateway to many things, including the environmental agenda. And when they discover their authority under this Obamacare decision, which most of them have not caught on to yet. I haven't heard anyone discussing how they can impose their climate change agenda by issuing regulations and laws pursuant to this Obamacare decision, uh, but they can. Obamacare, the, the Supreme Court opened the door to this. And once they realize it, then all their uh, dreams about controlling every aspect of our lives through this phony climate change issue, uh, they'll be able to do all that. And and I'm not saying. Let me just. I just said phony climate change issue. Let me let me clarify that. I don't think climate change is phony. Um, I think the man-made component of climate change is vastly overblown. I don't. First of all, the climate is changing. Okay, um, that is a fact. You know what else is a fact? The climate is always changing and has always been changing since the formation of the planet. 
That is the history of planet Earth, a constantly changing climate. Right? That has always been the case. So I don't deny climate change. And I don't even deny that man is, is playing a role in that. Uh, the truth of the matter is that we are, in fact, changing the content of the atmosphere. There's, there's no denying that. Um, among other things, we pump you know, billions of tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So we are changing the makeup of the atmosphere, albeit at, at a much slower rate than these climate alarmists would have you believe. Um, the other thing is, I believe that the claims that they make are, are grossly overblown, like by you know a million times. Uh, just look at their predictions, uh, going back decades and decades now. They have a track record of predictions, and every single one has been wildly wrong. And I uh, expect that every prediction currently being made is wildly wrong. They've never been right yet, and I don't believe that they are right now. Um, so yes, we may be contributing to climate change, which was already uh, going on because climate change always goes on, but our contribution is minuscule and we have, we have no idea what that level of contribution actually is. Nobody has any idea to what degree we're actually changing the climate, but beyond that, the United States contribution to climate change is minuscule in comparison to the rest of the world. Uh, far and away, the biggest contributor is China. And if we're not doing anything about China, we, can, we could stop all energy produ production today and it would make no difference. So it's, it's the practical realities of climate change and what we know and what we don't know and what we can do and what we can't do uh, that makes me opposed to all of this. So to drastically upend our society and the way we eat, even to the point of controlling our diets, all in the name of saving the planet from climate change, which we may be contributing to at most in a minuscule fashion, is just ridiculous. We eventually are going to cut carbon emissions drastically as our energy efficiency improves and as our energy technology improves. We will eventually move away from fossil fuels. But to force us now to leave fossil fuels and to stop eating hamburgers and whatnot, in order to adopt these alternative, alternative energy uh, sources right now when the technology isn't there for us to do this uh, in a large-scale manner, would be to crash our economy and to uh, vastly decrease the quality of our lives. And to do that, um, all in an effort to stop climate change, which we can't do anyway, uh, is ludicrous. So, all right, what do I have anything else that I wanna discuss? How long, all right, I've hit my hour mark. I like to keep it about an hour. Um, let me just check. Now, I don't have anything else that is pressing. Right now, I will, um, once again, because there's new people listening all the time, please, on whatever podcast app that you listen to this show on, please, if you can, if there's a way to do it, please leave me a positive review. Also, please follow me on my social sites. 
I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Those are the big two. I'm also on Parlay and Gab. But please, especially follow me on Facebook and Twitter. And if you follow me on Facebook, follow and like me. And I have no idea what the difference between the two is. You can like a page and follow it. What's the difference? I have no idea. Uh, so please do both to the extent that it makes a difference. Please do both. Um, also, bookmark and or sign up for free email notifications for both of my websites, markpantano.com and declaringliberty.com. Uh, and please, again, encourage other people to listen to podcasts. Also, if you enjoy this podcast and all of my other work, uh, please Subscribe over at patreon.com slash markpantano. That is a way to keep this all going and to get access to all of my content all in one place. So with that, uh, I am done. I thank you for listening. I seriously doubt that I will be recording another episode of the podcast over the weekend. Unless some major breaking news comes, you won't hear from me over the weekend. You won't hear from me again until next week. Uh, So until then... Enjoy your life, and remember, continue to fight the left like your freedom depends on it, because it does.